Daniel chapter 6. I, years ago, um, pro- probably about a decade ago, um, I was doing campus ministry at a secular college and we had a, we had a conference and we, there's like a bunch of kind of Northwest um, campus ministries that came together for this conference and this speaker was flown in and we were, someone was introducing this speaker that I didn't know at all. And it was interesting because he introduced himself and he just basically said, um, I'm a campus ministry at this other university and my job is to help people follow Jesus without being weird. That's what he said. And I remember, you know, there's a room full of cultures and everyone kind of chuckled and laughed. And, and the reason it's sort of funny is because sometimes Christians do kind of weird stuff, right? And yet, as I've kind of looked back on that experience, that sort of moment in which he was trying to sort of make a point, I've realized that inevitably, uh, regardless of how, how much you try to be normal, at some point in your life, if you're living out your Christian faith, someone whether it's your family, your neighborhood, your community, or your work, someone is going to look at you and say, you're weird. That, that, that behavior or that view or the manner in which you're interacting with people, it's odd. It's weird. So, so if, if you want to just kind of blend in, if you never want to stand out, I think in some ways Christianity might not be your jam. Because inevitably, Christianity will make you weird. I mean, I think for for decades, teachers, authors, writers have have been talking about this buzzword. Relevance. Like, how do we make the church more relevant? And, And the logic is kind of simple, right? If we want to uh, kind of change the culture, the culture can't think Christianity is weird. So, as the old saying goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And yet, as I was going through Daniel 6, I was just reminded of Peter's description of the church in his first letter, 1 Peter. And he calls the church... There's many descriptions that he describes the church as, but some of my favorite are that he calls them strangers and exiles. So so he calls Christians, right, uh, those who gather, he calls the church those who are sometimes out of touch, out to lunch. They don't fit in from time to time. They're strangers, foreigners, exiles. And I think we've all experienced this. There are times where we feel very relevant. There are times in which society might like us. We can maybe fix something. We're useful. But then the winds can change so quickly. And whatever it is, maybe it's just doing the right thing. When your boss tells you to do the unethical thing. Maybe it's the, the act of forgiveness or the desire not to join in on, in some gossip. Or if you've decided, I'm, I'm not going to do this sort of behavior, inevitably 
your relevance begins to be questioned. And you look odd. And that's what we're going to see here in Daniel chapter 6. You know this story. If you have any semblance of biblical literacy, if you were raised in the church, you know this story. It's Daniel and the lion's den. So every week I give you a big idea. I'm not going to do it this week, okay? Because you know this story so well, I don't want to give my big reveal at the end, okay? Because... I want to hide my cards for a little bit, and we'll get there. So, for the, like, the first time like since I've been here, I'm giving you no big idea. You're going to get it in the end. But with that said, let, let me read the first few verses of Daniel chapter 6 to kind of set the scene for this incredible story that you all know that I hope and I pray, as I have been praying this week, that maybe the point of Daniel 6 isn't exactly what you were taught when you were a kid. Maybe it's something bigger and more glorious. Verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom three satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. We'll, we'll stop there. So, so to go through this kind of story, we're not going to kind of do it in a sort of plot arc. I want to look at four principal characters in the story. Four important characters that move the story along. And the first character and really it's characters, that we see are some jealous conspirators. So if you remember from uh, last week, we ended chapter 5 with the fall of Babylon. And chapter 6 picks up right where chapter 5 leaves off. We have this new king, the king of the, the, the Medes and the Persian, King Darius. And he, as he comes to power, he does what like any king would do, right? He, he tries to set up his government. And so he kind of figures out who's going to be in my cabinet. How am I going to run this thing? And so he appoints 120 satraps over the kingdom. Now, basically, who are these people? Well, they're basically a combination of, you could think of them as an FBI agent and the IRS. So it was their job to kind of enforce things. And to collect tribute and make sure that there was a lot of taxes flowing in. So they were enforcers and tax collectors. But these 120 men who are appointed all throughout this kind of kingdom in different regions, a lot of money is coming in. And we see it here that because of this, there needs to be some checks on their balance, right? And so there are three men over these 120 other men to keep them accountable so that they're making sure that these 120 men aren't kind of, you know, scraping off the top. You know, you know they, they, take, they take a dollar and they put 10 cents into their pocket and give 90 cents to the king. And so three men are put in, we could call them, for lack of a better term, they're now vice presidents. And they're there as sort of accountability partners. 
to make sure that the king gets his due. We see that in verse, um, in verse 2. So that the king might suffer no loss. Well, at the same point, these three men that are over these 120 satraps, they, they, these three men have to have impeachable, impeccable integrity. And one of those three men is Daniel. And he's so good at his job that he rises to the top. And now the king, as he's kind of watching this, says, I'm going to take him, who was kind of a vice president, and I'm going to make him president. So there's going to be like multiple layers now. You get the 120, then there'll be two, and then there'll be one, and then there's the king. The king's still going to be ruling, but now Daniel is about to be appointed prime minister of this kingdom. And you can imagine the frustration. Just imagine the frustration of these men because they all probably want this job and they're about to be overlooked for this job. I don't know if you've ever experienced this where you've worked hard, you've done all the right things, and then you're up for a promotion and you don't get the job. And one emotion that can come up is jealousy. Right? Maybe on your worst day, maybe you don't say it, but on your worst day, you're thinking, I could do the job better than they. The hiring manager got it wrong. I should have been the right person for that job. And so you see this jealousy begin to inflame in these 120 men and these other, the, the two men over them. And it just sort of becomes this vice grip over their heart. And then it really begins to turn because these men now need to figure out what to do. They need to figure out how to get rid of Daniel. So they, 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 they go to Daniel. They, they look at all his books, all his numbers, right? They, they, they get out his Excel worksheets, and they're like, ah, he hasn't taken any bribes. I mean, just imagine. They, they look in. If, if you Keep going. They look into everything, verse 4, and no ground of complaint or fault can be found. Imagine that a government official, and they look into his life, his public and private life, and they can't find anything, nothing. He is a man of impeachable character and integrity, or impeccable, excuse me. So that doesn't work. So they're like, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to get rid of this guy? He's about to take the most important job in this kingdom. How do we get rid of him? Verse 5. These men then said, We shall find no ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So here we have these officials. They then had this like secret meeting behind closed doors. Maybe it's a, you know... 120 satraps and these other two guys, and they're coming together, and they're, they have this like devious brain, um, brainstorming session. Like, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to get rid of them? I can just imagine one guy goes, isn't Daniel religious? Like, it, actually, isn't Daniel one of those fundamentalists? Like, he's just like really intense about his religion. And then the light bulb goes, goes off, and they're like, we've got the plan. We've got the plan. We, 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 we know how to trap Daniel. And so the plan's simple. It's risky because they've got to get the king involved, but they've got a full, uh, foolproof plan to entrap, entrap 
the king and Daniel, and to get rid of him. And so we see it there in verse 7. That they're going to ask the king to make an edict. I'll read it for us. He wants the king to put an edict in place that, that all the high officials uh, of the kingdom, the, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors, all agreed as they go to the king. This is their pitch. They all agree, which right there you know, they're overplaying their cards. Not all of them agree, Daniel being one of them. But they go to the king like as a united force saying, hey, we all agree that this is the wisest thing you can do, king. And so they go united and they say, we're all in agreement that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions. Now, for 30 days, and 30 days only, we're going to stop all religious observance. And remember, this this was the Babylonian Empire, and now it's the Medo-Persians, but there's lots of gods. There's lots of worship going on. And so they're saying, we're going to stop all these different temple worships and these various worships of other gods. We're going to stop all of it. And for 30 days, everyone in the entire, this entire new kingdom, we're going to just worship the king. And you can imagine how this would sound to the king. I mean, one, it preaches to his vanity, right? He's like, yeah, this is great. 30 days and I'm going to be the talk of the kingdom. So, so it plays to his vanity. But, but more than that, it plays to a, a way in which he can figure out how his polling numbers are doing. So, so if, you know, 25 of, 25% of the kingdom says, nope, we're going to continue to worship our God and we don't fear you. That's, that's telling. That's important as a new king to know your polling numbers. It's also a way he can unite the kingdom, right? That we're all coming together. We're all now Medo-Persians. We're all coming together and we're all connected to our relationship to the king whom we're all going to set our affection on and kind of worship and pray to for 30 days. So, so it was a unifying thing. You know, singing kumbaya to the king for 30 days. He kind of loves it. He's like, that makes sense. That seems wise. And all my counselors, all the wise people, they're all in agreement. So let's do it. We also learn, and we, 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 we hear this multiple times, that in accordance with the Supreme Court of the Medo-Persians, once a king kind of writes an edict like this, you know, puts his ring down, it can't be changed. It's binding. So, so as we open up verse 10, the trap's been set. These jealous conspirators, they've got their plan. It's moving. The, the, the plan is in motion. But look at what this kind of form of jealousy looks like. It, it's interesting because if you go down to verse 13, it's not just that they're jealous because they lost their job. There's something more going on here. Verse 13, as, they, um, as Daniel, spoiler alert, Daniel is going to disobey this edict. And then when they go as sort of tattletales to the king, we read verse 13. They, they, they answered and said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles of Judah, pays no attention to you. Now, why do they bring up his ethnicity? Well, why do they bring up that he's Judean? Well, I think it's clear that here you've got all these 
all these men who are Medo-Persians who have lived and they've got generations of people, they're insiders. Their grandfathers were satraps. And here's Daniel, who's an outsider, culturally and religiously. And he's, he's rising up. He's not one of us. He's a foreigner. That's the, the unmasking of their hatred takes this jealous, but then also this cultural and religious hatred. And I think in, in many sense, what, what strikes me about this, these first characters, these jealous conspirators, it, isn't that I can't relate to them, isn't that they're hard to relate to. In many ways, these first characters are really easy to relate to. It's easy to fall susceptible to jealousy and envy when people get promoted and when people rise up faster than we do. And perhaps we don't take the great steps that they are taking to get a man killed in light of their jealousy. We all know what that feeling is like. And so here we have our first character that set the stage that are moving the story forward, these jealous conspirators. But the second principal character we see is Daniel. And Daniel, I'm just going to call a faithful servant. All right? Now, already we've learned Daniel. Daniel's a man who is above reproach. They can't find anything against him. His public life and his private life, they match. And so starting in verse 10, we see kind of his faithfulness blossoming. So this edict is signed. And what does Daniel do? Well, in many ways, Daniel does nothing different, right? Daniel could have done different things, but the text is clear that when he's praying and when he, he prays three times a day, it says, verse uh, 10, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. M- meaning that Daniel seemingly had a spiritual discipline that he would morning Noon and night, he would get down on his knees and he would pray. And so this edict comes, and Daniel, the same Daniel who in chapter 1, when, when he feels defiled by the king's food, says, I'm not going to eat it. This is the type of Daniel. He says, I'm not going to change anything about my life. So he goes to his house. He opens up the windows because he's not going to do this privately. He wants the wind to blow through. And so he, he also, the, the text says, he, he, he had the windows in his upper chamber open, and he does so towards Jerusalem. He's praying towards Jerusalem. Now, now why is he praying towards Jerusalem? I mean, it almost sounds like Islam, right? Praying towards Mecca or something like that. Well, it's not, I don't think, a, a ritual. I think, I think the text or what Daniel is doing is he's doing something theological. So, so Jerusalem was where God resided, theologically speaking, symbolically speaking. And so as he's in exile, he is looking towards Jerusalem because Solomon, when Solomon dedicated his temple, Solomon said, hey, and as you, you know, uh, as you go from this place, look and, and uh, gaze at Jerusalem as you pray. That was an encouragement that Solomon said um, in 1 Kings 8 to pray towards this place. So, so Daniel gets on his knees three times a day, as he always has, faces Jerusalem to kind of explain that, that even while I'm in exile, I can face and experience the presence of God. 
And he does all this in defiance of this edict. He doesn't change a thing. This is all as he had done previously. Three times a day, he just prays and prays. And it's about to cost Daniel. I mean, it's clear that his supreme allegiance is to God. But look at how this is going to cost him. So, conspirators come. I mean, they've got, like, evidence. They take their cameras out. They're videoing, you know, Daniel praying. And so they go into the king's palace, and they say, King, Daniel's praying. And, and they, they, they emphasize that he's been praying three times. So this is not like, oh, Daniel slipped, fell on his knees, and prayed accidentally. They're like, no, this is willful disobedience. And the king, you've got to do something about it. You've got to punish it. You sign this edict. And this edict, it's binding. Now, all Daniel has done up to this point is just lived his life as he's always lived his life. Been faithful to God. Lived with integrity. Been good. Jeremiah says, and and he really lived this out. Jeremiah says, when I send you into exile, I want you to go and seek the prosperity of the place, the city, the nation that I've sent you. And he's done that. He sought the prosperity of Babylon first and now the Medo-Persian Empire. He's not, you know, taking money for himself and for his family. He's seeking the prosperity. He's doing good. He is a good citizen. And his goodness is the very thing that gets him punished. I mean, we often think, oh, goodness, being a good person, a good citizen, will actually produce good things. And that's true sometimes. Not here with Daniel. It's because of his integrity, because of his goodness, that he is in the bind that he's about to be in. Character costs. Now, in some ways, I I think as we look to Daniel, it's hard not to see Jesus. I mean, the similarities in this story are just eerily similar, right? Between both Daniel and Jesus, both are described the same way, almost synonymously, that both are described as having um, the spirit, um, an excellent spirit within them. Both are conspired against, aren't they? Religious leaders in Jesus' day. And here, these government officials in Daniel's day. Both have to face a king that in many ways can't do anything about it. Both display faithfulness. And it's their very faithfulness that gets them in the trouble. Jesus just faithfully proclaims who he is. he's, He's healing people. He's declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's the very thing that he's doing, his faithfulness, that is getting him into so much trouble. And Daniel, well, he's, he's about to get thrown into a cave. He's going to be thrown into a pit of darkness, and Jesus is going to be crucified and then put in a tomb. You also see the, an eerie similar in, in this whole idea of prayer, that when, that when opposition comes, when persecution comes, when conspirators come, for both Daniel and Jesus, they go out and pray. I mean, there's more and more and more eerie similarities between Daniel and Jesus. And the wonderful thing is that if you stare at Daniel long enough, if you sort of blink when you're looking at him, there really is a lot of gospel because Daniel's about to go into the pet 
and be raised to life. Just like in a far greater way, Jesus is going to be crucified for sinners and then raised to life. There's gospel in this. We're going to see more of it in a second. But, but, but we talk as a church a lot about the gospel. And if you don't know what that is, or you don't know what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus, come talk to me after the service. I'd love to, to walk with you and encourage you and, and explain more of what it looks like to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. But those are the first two characters. We have the, we have the jealous conspirators. We second have this faithful servant. But then third we have, and this is the most tragic character, we have a helpless king. Verse 14. This king, if, it, if he weren't a, I mean, he's not a great character, but you almost feel sorry for this king, right? This, this king has fallen to what we might call entrapment. And just look, verse, look down at verse 14. Look at his emotional state. It says, Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. So I don't know what's going on, but there is a reason why this king was seeking to promote Daniel. They had some sort of relationship, maybe some sort of fondness, favor, friendship. And when the king hears that Daniel has been charged with, you know, high treason, he's distressed. And so he he goes back to maybe his chamber, he gets his cabinet, he gets the, you know, a constitutional lawyer in Medo-Persian law, and he gets them all in a room, and he goes, I need a loophole, guys. Like, how do I get out of this? How do I get Daniel out of this bind? I don't want to throw him in the den of lions. The clock is ticking, too. Because when a charge in, in, in their society, when a charge is levied, they've got until sunset in order to... To, to, to rectify the charges. But all his advisors come to him and say, there's nothing we can do. You're helpless. You signed the edict. You're bound by the edict. You must follow through. So those who kind of entrapped these jealous conspirators, verse 15, they come back, they, they remind the king once more, hey, Daniel did this. Two, you signed this edict. Three, you gotta do it. Verse 16, the king gives the order. He says, go get Daniel. Throw him in the lion's den. The lion's den, you could think of it as a sort of cave that, that had an opening at the top and then a kind of an opening that you would have to roll a rock or a large stone in front of. And so he does it. They, they throw Daniel into this lion's den, and then they roll the rock, and then the king goes home. Verse 18. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. I mean, the the king is distraught. He can't believe what he just had to do. He can't even sleep. He takes the melatonin and doesn't even help. I mean, the king, when you think about it, he's the most powerful person in this region of the world. In some sense, maybe at this point, he's the most powerful person in the world, and he is helpless. When he snaps his fingers, you know, things happen. 
He can't do anything. He's helpless. I think there are times when we think about our, the, the empires of, of, of the world, our government, our nations, and we think that's where we're going to get help. We put our hope and trust in governments, empires. But even the greatest nation, the strongest nation, a nation with the most powerful military, they can't protect our kids. Not always. There's a lot of good and there's a lot of uh, favor and there's wonderful things about living today in America. And yet, when you just think about all the things that happen, all the money we spend in military and there's still school shootings. Um, all, all, all the, the things, um, all, all the money we pump into with taxes and, you know, still drunk driving accidents. Phil and I met with the police chief of Puyallup. There was a bunch of pastors, and he was just sharing his heart and what's going on in the community. And he was just saying how police officers were just working really, really hard. But they, and I just, he said basically like, but we can't do it all. There's just so much that are bigger than us that we can't solve so many societal problems. And it just really was sobering to, to remember as, as wonderful as that is, that at the end of the day, if my hope is that there will be no crime, no violence. If we just had more police officers, we realized that's quite naive. We live in a broken world, a complicated world. And if we fix our hope in governments and empires thinking that they're going to solve all of our problems, well, we're reminded in the face of this king, King Darius, that the most powerful man, he He was weak. As simple as trying to get a man out of prison, he couldn't do it. His hands were tied. Some problems are beyond our earthly ability to fix. But there's something wonderful the king does in light of all of that. Look there in verse 16. This is amazing. It's remarkable. This pagan, if we can use that term, this pagan king, verse 16, he prays. Look at it. The king declares to Daniel, right, right, right before he's thrown into the den of lion, the king declares, declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Right? He, he couldn't deliver Daniel. He was helpless. His hands were tied. And so he did the only thing he could think to do. He said, I know you're a religious man. I know you worship this particular God. And I'm going to pray to that God that he will rescue you because I can't. But maybe, just maybe, your God is able. The king knew there was no earthly help that he could give. But he wondered, was there a heavenly hope, a spiritual hope? Was there hope attached to Daniel's God? Could Daniel's God be the sword of God that might actually intercede on behalf of his people and rescue. In some ways, what the king is saying is, is your God alive? Is he living? And will he show up? That's the sort of question that ends character three, kind of stage three in this narrative. 
the helpless king just wonders, is your God going to show up? And so, fourth, enter our fourth character. The most important character in all the Bible, in all of our lives, and in this text, God. Verse 19, right? The, the king barely sleeps and he rises early in the morning. Verse then 20, he, he runs in and he calls out to Daniel, right? Verse 20, O, o Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? So, so he announces, Daniel, are you alive? And, and my guess is his, his heart's pumping. He, he's got maybe a little bit of hope. He, he's got enough hope to, to, to cry out and ask the question. Or is he all is he going to find is, you know, the body of his friend. And then, I don't know if it was a minute later, a second later, I'm not sure, but Daniel responds in the den of these lions. Daniel says to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, king, I have done no harm. Daniel survived the night with lions. He's delivered. Not by the king, is he? That king couldn't do it. But God did. And God sent an angel, shut the mouth of the lion, and Daniel's rescued. So, so Daniel went through what we might call as trial by ordeal. Now, our society, and, and actually most societies don't do this anymore, but, but for, um, during Daniel's time and, you know, three, four hundred years ago, they were still doing this. They would say, oh, you were found, someone accused you of a crime. And so you would say, well, we are going to let nature decide if you were innocent or if you are guilty. So we'll, for instance, throw you into a lake. We'll bind you. If you sink, you were innocent. If you float, you're guilty. And so here, Daniel has a sort of um, judgment by ordeal. So he's thrown in, and the question before is, okay, if he survives, then he, he, he's innocent. If he's eaten by the lions, then he's guilty. And so when he survives, it's not just that he personally is rescued. He personally survives. It's that he and his faith is vindicated. He's innocent. And so right after that, it's why all the charges are dropped. So we've got these kind of mirror images because you have Daniel 3 and you've got this fiery furnace and now you've got Daniel 6 and they're very, very similar, aren't they? They both get, these, these faithful men both get thrown in. They both survive by, the, by way of God's angelic, you know, you know, protector. They both come out. There's no scratch on them. But in both ways, God is vindicated. And God is vindicated. God is displayed as faithful. He displays that he is the living God because he rescues his people. You see, in many ways, it's not just that Daniel has, is, is going through this ordeal to see if he is um, guilty or innocent. Really, it's not Daniel who's on trial alone. Daniel's God's on trial. 
That's how this king is setting it up. Is your king alive? Is your king able to rescue you? Will your king deliver you? And so when Daniel is rescued, the king has proof that not only is Daniel innocent, but God, Daniel's God, is vindicated as the living God. Which is why in relationship, all the conspirators, they get thrown in next, don't they? And their families. And to just make it clear that this was a miracle, to make it clear that it wasn't as if like the lions had a stomach ache and that's why they didn't eat him. It says like they, these people were dropped in and even before they hit the ground, the lions swarmed them and broke their bones. It's just a kind of a narrative reminder. No, 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 this was a miracle. This was no accident. Daniel survived. He survived because God sent an angel. He survived for many reasons. But preeminently, the reason why God saved Daniel and rescued him is because he wanted to display who he was to the king and the nations. Look look how the text ends, right? I've said this before, just as a reminder. Whenever you're in narrative and all of a sudden you see poetry, stare at the poetry. Like the, 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 the author is trying to communicate that something theological, theologically important is going on. And so you've got this narrative and then it breaks out into poetry in verse 26. But I'll start in verse 25. Then King Darius wrote, so Daniel's out. He's vindicated. Those who are Guilty, the conspirators, that they have their judgment, verse 24, and then verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the people's nations and language that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And look at how God is described. For he is a living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion's den. That's how our text ends. And then it ends with Daniel's prosperity. He prospers as a result of coming out. But God rescued his servant And he does so because he is going to display to the king and now the nations that he is the living God. See, the story of Daniel in chapter 6, the story of Daniel and the lion's den, isn't primarily about Daniel's faithfulness. It's not primarily that Daniel was courageous, that Daniel stood up to corrupt officials, that Daniel did the hard thing, and that God will save you when you do the hard thing and the right thing. That's not really what this is about. What this is about is that God is displaying who he is as the living God as he rescues his people. God has a message to the nations about who he is, his goodness, his glory, his bigness, that he actually works in this life and how he displays that he is alive is by rescuing people. Isn't isn't that what we're here to do? Like when, you, when we think about how do we display that God is alive? And, and maybe we're like, oh, we need to study apologetics, right? We need to kind of have all these proofs. 
that's, that's good. That's, that, that's wise. That's, that's helpful. But one of the greatest ways in which we communicate to the world that God is alive is as we testify that he saved us, that he rescued us. Not primarily from lions, although maybe that's one of your guys' testimony. I hope not. Not primarily from lions, but something far greater than lions. Something far more perilous than lions. Something even far darker than a cave. Our sin. He rescued us from ourselves. Our sin, our, our addiction to, this, to ourselves. Our worship of other gods. And he rescued us, not just so that we can now have our fire you know, insurance to heaven, but he saved and he rescued us just like he did Daniel so that he could display in us that he is alive, that he's working. Have you ever had that experience, right? You've talked to someone and then they're like, wait, you're a Christian? That's shocking. That's exactly right. And so the church is filled with people who are seeking to display that God is alive. And God displays that he's alive as he continually rescues his people. Daniel 6 very much is a a text that you could preach from lots of places. And it's simply this. I said I wouldn't tell you my big idea, but you, I hope, know it already. It's that God is displaying himself, his name. He's making his name great in this world and among the nations, as he does in Daniel 6. And he does it by rescuing his people. He rescued Daniel. He rescued us. And he continually is making his name known among the nations, among the people, among our neighborhoods and communities, our work, and he's making his name known through us. Having rescued us, now we, like the king, have the privilege, the honor, the joy of doing the very thing the king does, which is praise, giving testimony to the praise of God for what he's done in our lives and reminding people of how the God of Daniel can do it for you too. We talk a lot about relevance and about being relevant and being more relevant. But just in closing, let me remind us all that there's a sense in which Daniel wasn't relevant. He wasn't relevant at all. His, his religious devotion was irrelevant in one sense. It got him into trouble. It got him into a lion's den. But the message of Daniel 6, will always be relevant. You and I might not be relevant. But the message we proclaim, it's always going to be relevant. It'll always be relevant. So as you communicate it, as you meditate on it, as you trust in the message of the gospel, just remember that though some people might reject it, Though it might seem like foolishness to some, it is the power and wisdom of God unto salvation. 
it is relevant. It will always be relevant. Though it might get us into trouble. I'll I'll rephrase that, and then I'm going to pray. It will get us into trouble. Let's pray. Lord, we... um, We, we, we thank you, not just for Daniel's faithfulness, although we're, we're, we're thankful for, for mentors and men and women who, who, who model faithfulness to us. We, we thank you for them. We, we have many saints um, who, who have done that, who have discipled us and encouraged us. And so we thank you in that sense for Daniel, but, but, but more than that, we thank you for who Daniel's pointing to. And we thank you that in the midst of our unfaithfulness, that that you were faithful to us in sending your son to die for us that we might have freedom, deliverance. Thank you that you've rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son. We, we pray, Lord, that as we go out from this place, as we live our lives in our worlds that you have sovereignly placed us in, we pray that we would testify that you are the living God. And evidence A is us. We thank you for the life-giving power that you've given to us. And we pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.